Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to continue our study of this letter uh, for the rest of the fall, but we're going to spend a lot of time in the first chapter, partly because I'm the one doing the preaching this next month, and it's one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. So I got to plan how much time we'd spend here. You're welcome. But it's also partly because this letter lays out important ideas, principles, in the first chapter and a half that it then unpacks and applies later on in the letter. So we want to make sure we get the foundation real clear, establishing us, so that then we'll understand why he's applying these things in the way that he is. We're going to spend a lot of time in 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning we're going to spend time in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 5. And this is a section that sets up everything else in the letter with a picture of hope. Now, hope is not a uniquely Christian ideal or desire. Hope is something nobody can live without. I don't mean we shouldn't live without it. I don't mean that it's difficult to live without it. I don't mean that it's unpleasant to live without hope. I mean you can't live without hope. Hope is an animating force that's not like anything else. Hope is what, I, is what we mean by, by, by a vision for our future that we're working towards, a story that our life is unfolding that ends somewhere good, something that gives us purpose, orientation in the world. It's how we know who we are and what our lives are for. No one can live without that. The opposite of hope, of course, is despair, sort of lifelessness, a a, a lack of of perspective on what's next and, and why I should care. Despair that makes me wonder what it's all for and whether it's worth going on. Everybody needs hope. But it matters what you hope in. It matters why you hope. In fact, your your life depends on what you're hoping in. Your life depends on on a hope that will last. A hope that can account for the way of the world as it is, not as we wish that it was. And Peter begins his letter here with hope. And the only hope that can hold us up. Now, one of the things we're going to have to work against in ourselves as we talk about hope this week and in the next couple of weeks is the way that we often use the word. And the way I've just described it is not always the way we use that word. A lot of times we use hope as, with a kind of uncertainty built into it. You know, like, like we hope for something when we're not sure about something. I, I hope it won't rain on our cookout this afternoon. I say that because I'm not sure that it won't. I don't want it to. That's what I mean by hope in that situation. I hope the Titans don't lose any games this year. Well, there's some uncertainty built into that based on a long track record of losses. But that's not how Peter uses that term. That's not what the Bible means by it. When the Bible talks about hope, what makes it hope is that it's unseen. It's still in the future. Its its object is still, still to be revealed. We're still waiting for it. Hope is, is a posture of waiting. But, but, but it doesn't mean that it's uncertain. This is a hope that depends entirely on the rock-solid certainty of God, his initiative, his purpose, his power, and his promise. And that's what we're going to try to understand together today. This hope that Peter's living for and calling on his friends to live for is a hope that isn't uncertain because it's a hope that begins and ends with God. We want to understand what makes this hope secure so that we can spend the rest of the letter trying to understand where it shows up and how it shows up in our lives as we wait. 
There are several facets of Christian hope that I want to pull out for you from these uh, several verses this morning. Several facets of Christian hope and what makes it secure. I want to walk you through them, but first want to read from these verses. I want to invite you now to stand with me in honor of God's word. While I read from 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to pick up in verse 3 and then read through verse 5. That's where we'll stop this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice Peter's starting with worship. Why? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's word. You can be seated. I mentioned that in, this, in just these, these several verses, Peter is giving us several different dimensions of Christian hope and what makes it secure. All I want to do this morning is try to pull those out to the surface for you so that you can see them and love them and trust them. Four steps, four things about this hope that make it secure. This hope that we need if we're going to have perspective on life and if we're going to make it to the end. Here's the first thing that Peter points to about this hope that gives it its security. Here's the, the, the first thing that he mentions and directs our attention to is the source of hope. And you can follow along these steps in the worship guide if you want and take some notes there. Point number one, the first thing he shows us is the source of our hope. This is what makes it secure. The source of our hope is God's mercy. This is verse three. Peter's hope and our hope begins with God and not with us. He starts with worship because God is his focus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's overcome. He's exclaiming this because it's just captured him and it spills out into worship. Why? Because of his mercy. That's why. It's according to his mercy that he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. So our attachment to this hope, this source of this hope is God. Now, let me, let me just make sure you understand why that's such big news. When did you last apply for something that you hoped to get? Something that was in your future, that was orienting you, you were wanting it, you were working towards it, right? So that was, in that sense, it served as a hope for you. This, this end point, this beacon out here that you're, that you're moving towards. Maybe it involved an application. Maybe that was getting into school. Maybe you applied for a grant. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're thinking of our, our city's bid for a major league soccer team this last year. When did you last apply for something? Put your hope at the end of an application. Think about that. When you're looking for reassurance, when you were looking for why your hope in that thing was secure, what did you look at? I mean, most of us would go to our qualifications, wouldn't we? So if you'd applied for a great school, that would have meant hopefully a good future on the other end of it, and you're waiting, probably you would have reassured yourself with your grades. Well, I got a good GPA. Look at all this AP credit I got. Maybe you look at your community service. I'm an Eagle Scout. What's not to love? Or, I'm not literally. I'm just imagining someone who, who might have been in that situation. 
Uh, maybe you would look at awards that you'd received. Somebody else thought I was in good shape, so chances are I'm in good shape now with this application. We applied for that soccer team. You know, we, we, we were hoping that we'd be awarded this, this, this team, and we were thinking about all the good reasons about Nashville that make it a great spot for a major league soccer team. Look at our economy. Look at all the places you can get a $15 burger. <laughs> Look at this beautiful site that's established for the stadium. That's going to be awesome. Look at how many people showed up for those exhibition games down at Titan Stadium. Why wouldn't they accept us? So you start looking at your qualifications, right? That's how you reassure, bolster that sense of hope. And look at what Peter talks about, though. When Peter says that we're born again to a living hope, this hope that he's talking about, well, it doesn't start with anything true of those people who hope in it. It starts with God. He doesn't point them to their qualifications. He doesn't say, you've got a living hope because just look at how well you've kept the law. No, he says, he says it's according to his great mercy that he's caused us to be born again into this hope. This hope comes downstream of a birth we had nothing to do with, which came out of a mercy that we don't deserve. The source is God and God alone. It is his mercy driving his power to give new life. That's what ushers us into this hope. This word born again in verse three, it emphasizes not the birth itself, but conception, being begotten by someone else. You're passive in this. Whoever takes credit for his own birth, one, one writer put, uh, asked, no one does. No one takes credit for being born. It just happens to us. So if we have life now, if we have a living hope now, it's because someone else gave us life, birthed us into that hope. And that's wonderful news, friends. It does mean that you can't take credit for it. I guess you could think of that as a downside. But in reality, that is a wonderful upside. Especially for those of you who know better than to hope in yourselves. One of the most common sources of hopelessness is knowing what's true about yourself. The shame that you live with over things that you actually have done. You know better than to try to wiggle out from under it. To try to recast and re-explain what went down to make it seem like it wasn't such a big deal. You know better than to expect you'll do better next time in your own strength. Some of you are living hopeless lives because you know what's true about you. And if that's the way you're living then this promise that the living hope at the core of Peter's life comes not from those who are hoping, but from the God who grants it for free based on mercy comes as life-giving good news. Think about what comes from birth, this image that he's using, to be born again. What it means to be born biologically is to come with a, an identity, at least in part, that's already fixed for you. You're born into an ethnicity, born into a citizenship, born into a socioeconomic class. Think about all the different things that bank up human identity that come just from being born. And Peter's taking that, what he knows is true about human birth, and he's, he's applying it to what it is to be in Christ. What you have now is a new identity that's just as comprehensive as the identity you got from your biological parents. Only this one's full of mercy. And this one aims at hope. The promise of the gospel, friends, is that, is that because of Jesus, not because of yourself, 
you can be redefined. You are not who you were. And that promise is offered to anyone who will trust in Christ's death on the cross in your place rather than entrusting in yourselves and your ability to turn your life around. No matter what you've done, this promise is offered to you. And the hope that comes on the other end of it is secure because it sources God and not my fickle obedience. That's the first thing Peter wants you to see about this hope. It's secure because its source is God and his mercy, not us. There's another thing, though. I want you to notice the ground of hope. What's the hope rest on? What's it founded on? Why should we believe it will be stable? The ground of hope is the next thing Peter mentions, and he does it quickly, but we can't just pass right over it because there's a whole bunch of important truth that rests on this, on this claim. The ground of hope, the reason we can hope, comes in verse 3 as well. He says that we've been born again. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The ground of our hope, what makes it secure, the claim at the heart of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. The, 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 the knowledge that he died a real death in a real human body, just like yours, but that he's not dead anymore. We hope because God has caused us to be born again, but Peter doesn't stop there, does he? We need to know what we're hoping on. Where does it rest? And what Peter, when he, when he goes to the, to the resurrection here, he's really just echoing his first sermons. If you look in Acts, which records the church's spread after Jesus left the earth, and, and, the, and the messages that the apostles like Peter were preaching about Jesus to people who didn't know about him, Peter's sermons are built around the resurrection. He's just, he's just going here to where he, what he's already said there and to what Paul himself, another apostle, claims in his letters as the basis for Christianity. Everything depends on Jesus being alive. So why? Why is this the key to our hope, the ground on which it rests? Why resurrection? Why is that so important? Well, think about what we've said already about hope. What, what we need from hope, what hope does for us is orient us to a point still to come that helps us know what we're for, where we're moving, what we're after, helps us know who we are. Depends on the future. Depends on where we're going. That's what hope needs. Hope is how we get up, how we know what to do, how we don't get crushed by hard things now. But... This gets to why I said earlier, it really matters what your hope is in. Because if your hope is a fixed point at the end that you're moving towards, you need to know that where we're going is no mystery. Where we're going, we know as surely as we know anything else about our lives. As surely as we know anything else about our lives, we know that our lives end, they don't last. So whatever hope you land on, any hope that's worthy of your confidence has to account for that problem. It has to account for where you know you're going. And our hope in Christ is based precisely here. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. 
And Jesus promised that because he rose again, you can too. This conviction that, that, that it's possible to live again. To live in a body as real as the ones we're living in now. That conviction is far more than just an ideal for the Christian. It, it's not about just living on in the hearts of others. That's not enough for Christians. It's not about just living on in the way that our bodies fertilize new life in plants that will spring up in the ground in the kind of Lion King circle of life sense. That's not enough for Christians. Christian hope is based on far more. It's based on something concrete, something observable, something that actually happened in history that witnesses saw with their own eyes. Peter is actually a fantastic example of this. Peter was one of Jesus' first followers. He actually, when, when he watched Jesus being arrested and beaten, tortured, and then killed, abandoned Jesus and denied that he even knew him. And after Jesus' death, when Jesus' body was in a grave, Peter was cowering in fear behind locked doors, just waiting on the knock that he knew might bring his death. That's where Peter was. That's how he was living. Hopeless. And now, by this point, by the time he reads, writes this letter, he's one of the leading voices in a movement that's exploding across the Middle East. He's in and out of prison for his refusal to stop preaching about Jesus. And only a couple years after this letter gets written, he's going to die. And church tradition says he dies like Jesus did, on a cross. What happened to this man? How did he get from this cowering shell of himself behind closed doors, locked, waiting, quivering with fear to a man who's death-defying, who seeks out the suffering of his own Savior? How did he get there? Well, he saw something. That's how he got there. Peter saw something. He saw a man whose death he'd witnessed he saw a man whose empty tomb he'd stepped into. He saw this man come to him, speak to him, eat with him, walk and talk with him. And he'd seen this man return again to heaven before his very eyes. He saw a man who triumphed over death. That's what he saw. And he heard from this man a promise that he could triumph over death too through Jesus it is no coincidence friends that Peter mentions the resurrection of Jesus even just quickly even with just this little jolt of it at the beginning of this letter it's no coincidence because not only was it the foundation for his hope his life as a Christian it wasn't just about his personal experience with Jesus he mentions it here because he's reminding Christians that he's writing to who were facing the costs of their belief why they believed in the first place he knows they're about to pay for their attachment to Jesus and he wants them to remember why they attached to Jesus in the first place I read a year or two ago, read a really interesting book by a historian out of the University of Edinburgh named Larry Hurtado. It was a book called Why on Earth, this is the actual title, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? That was his, that was his question that he was answering in this book. 
with good reason. In the first three centuries of the church's life, you got nothing out of this conversion. There was no powerful church that you might get into as a kind of leader and get promoted up through and, and, and have wealth because, you, because of your attachment to them. That would come later. It would corrupt the church in many ways later. That didn't happen in the first three centuries. In the first three centuries, if you became a Christian, this, and Hurtado's book explains all this, you actually would just watch stuff get stripped away from you. You could lose your family. You could lose your job. You could lose your good reputation. Sometimes you could even lose your life. You, you become a Christian in the first three centuries and you face loss, serious loss. Why would anyone become a Christian under those circumstances? Most of his book is just explaining why they shouldn't have, you know, what it was, st- the deck being stacked against them becoming Christians, wanting to be Christians. At the end of the book, he talks a little bit about you know, how might we know why they would have chosen to be Christians and where he points is the claim of Christianity to eternal life. Because there was a claim built into this Christianity offered to them that met the need they maybe hadn't even recognized they had. A longing for transcendence to rise above the short, brief years of life now. They were rallying to this claim that John, excuse me, that Peter puts at the beginning of his letter that Jesus is alive. I wonder... Have you considered the evidence for this claim? That Jesus actually did come back to life after he was dead? If you're not a believer uh, in Jesus this morning, I want to especially encourage you to think about about this claim. Christianity rests on a claim that is observable in history. It's not just an ideal. We're making a claim about something that really happened that you can investigate for yourself. And I wonder, have you considered what could possibly explain the rise of Christianity under terrible circumstances at great cost to those who became Christians? Not just the rise of it, the explosion of it around that ancient Middle Eastern world. What could explain the fact that the people who were believing in Jesus at that time were dying for their claim that he was still alive? They weren't they weren't dying for the reasons we've known others to die. Like we, we've known plenty of people who are willing to give up their lives in service of their country, for example. That's not what these people were dying for. This religion was brand new. They had no loyalty to it before they decided to become Christians. Others died to maintain their power. These people were losing power when they became Christians. They had no, no power to protect. Some people die for loved ones, but not these leaders. Often they were losing their loved ones because of their attachment to Jesus. They were dying because they wouldn't give up their belief that he was still alive. Why would they die for that claim if it wasn't true? If they hadn't actually seen it? Would you be willing to consider that evidence with me? With others from our church? We would love to put into your hands some some resources that explain the evidence for the the resurrection of Jesus and then to talk to you about it. You may be surprised how powerful and compelling it is. And if you decide to become a Christian, know that this has to be at the center of it. You must decide to become a Christian because you believe Jesus offers something no other religion could offer you because no other religion is offering you one who really did die but really did return from the grave and who has the power to give your life new life 
beyond death. Why should we hope? Peter's trying to answer that question. What makes our hope secure? Well, its source is God. That's partly it. But the ground of it on which our hope rests is that Jesus is alive again. Everything depends on this truth. The third layer to Peter's picture of hope shows us why. It shows us why the ground of this hope he's talking about must be Jesus really dead, now really alive. Why is it that this living hope only comes through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? That becomes clearer when you see what the object of this hope actually is. That's where he goes next in verse four. The object of hope Peter wants you to see. The thing that you're hoping for, that point in the future that orients you, that helps you know why to get up in the morning and what to do with the time that you have. That object of your hope depends on Jesus being alive again. Peter describes it as an inheritance, something that belongs to you that you'll one day receive. Look at verse four. You've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The object of our hope is this inheritance, this possession that's ours by right, that comes because of our birth into a family that owns this. It's who we are. It's what we hope for. But what is it? What is that inheritance like? I mean, Israel's inheritance, back in the Old Testament, this language of inheritance, Peter's pulling from the Old Testament, the way they used to talk about Israel's land. That was really tangible. We knew where it was. It had borders. It had rivers. It had mountains. You could see them. You could touch them. They knew what their inheritance was. What's this inheritance that Peter's drawn our attention to? Well, it's like Peter himself is having a hard time even describing it. Did you notice that the words he uses to describe this inheritance are all negative statements? He's, he's telling us what it's not like. It's not perishable. It's not defiled. And it's not fading. That's the best he can do. He can't actually tell us what it is like because he can't even fully imagine it. But there's a lot of power, even in this negative description he gives us, a power to stir up your longing for the object of Christian hope. He's chosen his three words here very carefully. We need to understand why he chose them. We need to understand why we're experiencing, how we're experiencing, what it is that will have no place in the inheritance that he's set aside for us. Let's look at them each one by one. This inheritance, this object of our hope, well, the first thing that he says is that it's imperishable. It can't be destroyed. That's what that word means. This precious inheritance can't be destroyed. Nothing can touch it. Have you realized yet that the things you love in your life are fragile? That your hold on them isn't actually secure? Part of growing up, if if you haven't realized this yet, you will. I mean, it's part of growing up and losing our innocence is recognizing how the things that we take for granted that give our life a kind of veneer of stability aren't actually that stable, can't be taken for granted. Sometimes this happens tragically through some sort of traumatic discovery, through abuse by a trusted adult or a divorce among your parents. Sometimes it happens later through a tragic accident where just driving down the road, something you've taken for granted as a safe thing to do for all of your life all of a sudden becomes deadly or the shock of a diagnosis where a normal routine physical turns into something more than just a physical 
At one time or another, though, all of us eventually come to recognize that we cannot protect what we love. Not fully. Not really. Life itself is fragile. Peter knows that. And he knows how bad that hurts. And that's why he says that our inheritance is imperishable. It's not like what we love here. It won't be destroyed. It can't be. He also says that our inheritance is undefiled. What does that mean? This is a little harder to connect with, I think, partly because it's pulling from this notion of of impurity and and defilement that's attached to Israel's way of sacrificing and temple washings and a whole system of approaching God that emphasizes how sin works in us. We don't really have that as part of our context. Most of us don't anyway. So we hear him say it's undefiled, and that one to me especially is a barrier to me connecting with it. But let 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 me try to help you connect with it. Let me try something. What it is to have an inheritance that's not defiled. It means that it's an inheritance that's not polluted. It's not mixed. It's not tainted. And, and in our experience, if we think about it a little more carefully, everything comes tainted in one way or another, doesn't it? Everything we love. So think about things that are precious to you now. Things that you love about your life now. Everything in your life is tainted. As often as not, in my experience, what I love is tainted by me. It's tainted by my greedy desire for even more than what I have. Or tainted by my envy of what other people have. Or tainted by my unrealistic expectations about how happy this thing will make me. Or tainted by the fact that I know it's just not going to last forever. In my life, in my experience, I'm sure in yours too, we have real joy, genuine joy in the good things of life. But always that joy comes tainted, comes defiled by the limits of these things and by my sinful attachment to them. But my inheritance, it's not like that. Can you imagine, friends, precious possessions untainted by you? by their own limits, by the passage of time. Can you imagine what that joy would feel like? That's the inheritance Peter's holding out in front of us. Undefiled. Can't be polluted. The last thing he says about this inheritance is that it's unfading. Our inheritance is unfading. In other words, not only can it not be destroyed by others, by circumstances, by outside threats that attack it. Not only can it not be polluted by me, my hold on it, but it also can't decay over time. It won't wear out. It isn't fading. It won't end like everything else that's precious to me in this life. The perishing of something you love, like we mentioned above, can bring one kind of trauma. You know, that sort of all of a sudden, out of nowhere, loss of something that was precious to you. That hurts in one particular way. But in another way, time does that to everything and everyone. So if you take your whole life and make it into a kind of time-lapse photography where it's fast-forwarded, you'll see the same things happening to what you love that, that happens when a tragic accident occurs or an unexpected diagnosis 
in the grand scheme of things, the same process just happens through a different, through a different means and over a different time scale, but everything fades. I've been especially sensitive to that this week, my wife and I have, for a few reasons. One of them is that our middle child started kindergarten this, year, this week. And I know everybody experiences that change differently and there is lots to be excited about and it is a wonderful opportunity for him and we did celebrate it in lots of ways. But we experience it as a kind of requiem. We experience it as that kind of, that kind of uh, tolling bell at the beginning of the organ music on Chopin's funeral march. You know, dong, dong, and then the organ... Dun, 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 dun. That's how we experience this week. That's been the soundtrack to our week, basically. I know everybody experiences it differently. That's where we were. From all different angles, this week has been particularly poignant in my life. What I treasure now is vulnerable, and you, what you treasure is vulnerable. But what Peter's telling us is that our, our inheritance, it isn't like that at all. It won't fade. What you love just goes on and on and on when what you love is this inheritance. This inheritance, however difficult it is to imagine now, it's defined by a love that will never end. Ultimately, what makes us hurt so badly when we lose the precious things that we have in our lives now is our love for them and that that love gets severed. It's the severing of love. We live for love. It's right that our hope should be love. But in this life, trapped as we are in time, our love always ends. And what Peter's trying to help us see is that this inheritance, well, it involves a love that just goes on. Heaven is a world of love with God as its center and God as its greatest prize. Listen to the way Jonathan Edwards captures this in in a sermon called heaven is a world of love i've probably quoted this to you guys before i don't remember i'm sorry if i have but i just have to quote it again this is how he imagines heaven they speaking of those who are in heaven enjoying this inheritance he says they shall know that they shall forever be continued in the perfect enjoyment of each other's love they shall know that god and christ will be forever and that their true love will be continued and fully manifested forever and that all their beloved fellow saints shall live forever in glory with the same love in their hearts and they shall know that they themselves shall ever live to love God and love the saints and enjoy their love they shall be in no fear of any end of this happiness nor shall they be in any fear or danger of any abatement of it through weariness of the exercises and expressions of love or the beloved objects becoming old or decayed or stale or tasteless. Now in heaven, he writes, all things shall flourish in an eternal youth. That's the inheritance. That's our hope and that's why it's secure. It is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. There's one last thing. One last dimension to this hope that makes it secure, that makes it worth pinning your life to, that separates it from all other hopes that will only leave you crumbled in the end. And that is hope's guardian. 
So we've pointed to the source of hope. That's God, his mercy. We've pointed to the ground of hope. That's God again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son from the dead. We've pointed to the object of hope, the inheritance that God has set aside for us, which is him and all of his beauty and wonder, loving him, being loved by him forever. And now we see the guardian of hope, which is God's own power. Look at verses four and five. This inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Well, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And not only is the inheritance kept in heaven for you, preserved there, protected, guarded by God for you. Not only that, but you are those who by God's power, verse five, are being guarded yourselves through faith till your salvation is revealed once and for all at the end of time. Did you see what he's doing there? Why should you hope? Even if this inheritance were precious and everything you could ever imagine and then some, and even if it had your name on it, a to be opened at that time by this person only and was set aside for you, if your hope in that inheritance depended on its protection by you or on your ability to get there, then you have no hope, not really. What you have is uncertainty. What you have is a maybe. What you have is a huge, bold-faced asterisk. But that's, that's not what Peter says. No, he's saying that the inheritance, it's protected by God's power and that you are also being guarded by God's power. He's protecting the inheritance for you and he's protecting you for the inheritance. God is its guardian on both ends. Yes, of course we must have faith. And yes, of course, we've got to hold on to that faith even when it's difficult. We are commanded to believe and and that's a command we must obey. No one who lacks faith will ever see God, the scriptures tell us. But even this faith that we have to have is given and protected by God. That's what Peter's telling us to fill out this picture of hope. Because what we know is that if any part of this hope depends on me, it's vulnerable. If any part of this hope depends on me, I'll never be able to rest, not really. But from beginning to end, Peter's showing me I have no reason to fear and every reason to hope. Imagine somebody tells you, I just want to, I want to press this in a little bit more and make sure you understand the beauty of this promise that God guards it for you and you for it. Imagine someone does, does, does set aside some priceless treasure for you, but says, go get it. I've put it up at the top of Mount Everest. Have fun with that. Well, then there are going to be two huge problems. One is that it's unprotected in a hostile environment. There's a lot of snow up there, a lot of wind, wild animals. Problem two, I'm never going to be able to climb up there to get it. It's not going to happen. That means that that treasure, priceless, set aside for me with my name on it, is not good news after all. It's only good news if it's protected for me and if I'm protected for it. And that is what God does for his children. Can you see now, friends, why Peter starts this whole list of things about hope with praise and worship? 
Why, the first thing out of his mouth is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's worshiping before he even goes into this hope stuff. Because this hope begins with God. It focuses on God. It's protected by God. From beginning to end, it's God. It's source, it's ground, it's object, it's guardian. And that means that our hope is as secure as the one who sits on the throne. Father, we ask that you would help us to trust you. There is nothing we need that you haven't promised to us. No greater promises than we can imagine than what you've laid out even in these few verses. But we know that our only hope in this hope is you giving and protecting hope in us. Would you do that? For Jesus' sake, would you do that? I pray especially for those who came in this morning hopeless. Thank you that they're here, that they were able to hear from your word. I pray that you would give them hope now. I pray for all of us clinging to this hope that you would make us messengers of it as well that you would help us to enjoy it, to live from it, so that we can also give it to others. And I pray that you would make our church, our community here, a kind of vortex of hope where we're constantly rehearsing it, where we're constantly reminding each other of it, where we're constantly fighting for it and helping each other hold on to it. Make us a community, a people of hope, we pray, for Jesus' sake, because he's worth it. Amen.